I don't want to talk to you tonight for a few minutes about how to take faith to a pre-faith age. How do we bring our faith to a world that doesn't share our assumptions about the Bible or morality or in some cases ethics? How do we communicate Christ in a society that really doesn't know anything much about what he represents? I believe it's not bad news for the church that we're in a pre-faith age because when the Acts of the Apostles happened, that's exactly what they found, a pre-faith age. We can do quite well, thank you very much, in a pre-faith age if we're willing to make the right moves. Influence is our calling. We are not called to be influenced but to influence. You as a Christian are not called to influence but to be influenced. Uh, the other way around. It's been a long day. Jeremiah 29, 7 says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have sent you in exile. And pray for that city, he says, because when you seek its welfare, you find your welfare. God intends the city of Berlin to be blessed because of, not in spite of, the fact that you're in it. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says, Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing, not the removing, of your mind so that you may live out the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. Now, that's not just a statement about your personal walk with Christ. This was written to a group of churches in Rome. It was written to a group of people. And Paul is saying, don't, allow, don't be conformed to the culture of Rome. But be transformed because your mind is changed, so that you live out the God kind of culture. What is good, acceptable and perfect to God? And if we're going to bring faith to a pre-faith world, we're going to need some changes in our thinking. We looked at a couple of them this morning. The headship of Christ and a new understanding of worldview. But we're also going to have to have, if we're to bring faith to a pre-faith age, a new understanding of innovation. Innovation begins with creativity. The essential element of creativity is curiosity. Einstein once said the most important thing is that you don't lose your childlike curiosity. There was a survey of CEOs here in Europe a couple of years ago and these heads of major companies were asked, if you were recruiting someone and interviewing people for a, for a job, which would you be looking for the most, a certain mindset or a certain skill set? 95% of them said, I would look for the mindset because I can add the skills later. And when they were asked the follow-up question, what sort of mindset, almost every one of them said, I'd be looking for a curious mindset that sets out or seeks out creative solutions. You see, only the curious will challenge what is with what could be. So creativity is very important today. It's very important to society today. But innovation goes beyond creativity. Innovation is creativity applied to solve practical or pragmatic problems. So what you see up here tonight is creativity. The music, the media, that's creativity. What you're sitting on is innovation. Somebody has solved a practical problem. What you drive home tonight if you have a car or ride in if you take a tram or a bus, 
is innovation, the practical solution to a problem. Now, we find this all the way through the Bible. Joseph, in Genesis 41, had a good idea to match his revelation. Berlin is not interested in your revelation of God. It's interested in your ideas, though, if they solve problems. Joseph understood that revelation, when you combine it with imagination and add to that application, brings about innovation. And innovation leads to influence. If I have God speak to me about something and I apply my imagination to that and add to that some practical application, that's innovation. And innovation creates doors of influence for you, as it did for Joseph. Joseph stands before the king and says, this is the king's dream and this is what it means. That's revelation. But the king wasn't impressed with that. It's when Joseph adds, and this is what the king should do about it. He ended up feeding nations when his brothers were struggling to feed their families. That's innovation. Nehemiah was the same. He rebuilt not just a wall but a national economy because a wall represented the security you needed to rebuild an economy. I tell you, the south of Europe could do with that today. We need some Nehemiahs in the world today. Maybe there are some here who are called to that. I believe Jesus was the ultimate innovator because he solved the greatest of all problems. The problem of my separation from God and my fellow human beings and my environment. Jesus did all of that. Our world today, your country today, your city today needs problem solvers and innovators as much as or more than it needs preachers. Do I say there's anything wrong with preachers? No, I am one, but I'm not only that. We need innovators as much as or more than we need preachers today. Germany ranks number two in the world after South Korea for its readiness to handle the robotics revolution that is, not might, but is coming. Across the globe, 230 million jobs will be automated in the next 20 years. Who is going to solve the problem of underemployment? And people struggling to transition from one career to another when the automation wave really hits. In 2022, 79% of Germans will have access to a smartphone. Great. Amazing. But think about it, it still means 21% will have no access to a smartphone and all the opportunities and advantages that it brings. Who will solve the problem of tech haves and have-nots? in Germany and in Europe. 1.2 million Germans could be living in shelters by the end of 2018, this year, because of a national housing shortage. You know about that. Who's going to solve the problem of housing, not only for people in the social net, but young people who can't get access to rentals that they can afford? Housing prices went up in this city 20.5% last year, in one year. Who's going to solve the problem of a lack of housing? Germany has one of the highest rates of heart disease among advanced economies. Who is going to help people live more healthy lifestyles? In the past 20 years, Germany's seen an 80% increase in the number of workdays lost to stress. I said 80%. 8-0% 
More people now are taking days off because of stress than they were 20 years ago. Who's going to solve the problem of the loss of productivity because of stress? 1.1 million people have migrated to Germany since 2015. Who will solve the challenges of integration? In 2017, for the first time, cash payments accounted for less than half of all receipts in Germany. Cash is no longer king in your country. It was the same in the UK last year for the first time. Who's going to solve the problem of digital debt? You see, cash is messy. It's bulky. It takes up space in your pocket. But that's the point. You can feel it leaving your pocket. You can feel your pocket getting lighter as you spend. You can feel the money waving. Bye-bye. Your wave and pay card doesn't change weight when you use it. If you're into cryptocurrencies, your Bitcoin or Litecoin, which is binary code on a screen, do not change weight as you use them. So we are, by abandoning cash altogether, encouraging people to spend without forethought. Which is why we have a rapid rise in countries like the UK and the US in the number of charities devoted to keeping people out of debt. Am I saying we all go back to cash and do away with cards, etc.? Of course not. I'm a futurist. How could I possibly believe that? But I do believe we don't throw the baby out with the bath water. Who's going to solve the problem of digital debt? 8% of the world today owns 82% of its wealth. Who's going to solve the problem of economic inequity in the world? There are scores of other problems that we could enumerate tonight, not just in Germany, but around the world. Who will solve those problems? Is there anybody in the church of Jesus Christ who says, I don't just want to be creative. Thank God for good music. Thank God for nice media. I want to innovate. I want to solve a problem. I want to solve a problem. It may be small. It may be large. It may be on a national scale. It may be on my own human scale. If I can just solve one problem, maybe I will not only make people's lives better and honour God in the process, just maybe I will make people curious about why I did it. First Peter says, always be ready to give an answer to those who ask of you a reason for the hope that is in you. One time I was on, I'm in the media a lot in, in the UK and other parts. One time I was on the BBC, I was being interviewed by the arts editor of the whole of the BBC, who's a very good man. And in the middle of a conversation about some issue or other, he stopped and he looked, in, he looked at me across the desk and he said, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, yes. Do you believe Christians in the UK are persecuted? No. And here's my reasons. And then we went on with the conversation. Now, he's too busy to Google me. He didn't know what I believed. But there was something, something. I don't know what it was. Something in what I said that suggested I might be a person of faith. I wasn't there to preach. You see, all evangelism is mission, but not all mission is evangelism. You're not called to go to work on Monday and evangelize by preaching to everybody. What you need to do is inspire curiosity so they say, what is it about you? Can you tell me? Why are these things happening for you? Why do you get these innovative ideas? Where do they come from? Well, 
You can say in the words of the New Testament, it's the Lord's doing and it's marvellous in my eyes. I don't even understand it, but I'm grateful for it. If we're going to bring faith to a pre-faith world, we need a new understanding of the marketplace. In the work that I do, I read a lot over a year. One of the things that has moved me the most in the last three years has been the story of a, a black pastor, a Methodist pastor from Charlottesville, South Carolina. His name was Clem Pinckney. He was well known in his community for his work, not just in the church, but in the civic space. His life was cut tragically short in 2015 when a lone gunman burst into a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night and killed nine people. His funeral was attended by people from far and wide. The eulogy was read by no less than then President Barack Obama. Speaking during the funeral service, the pastor's associate said, you know, People used to ask pastor all the time, why do you not only grow this church, but you invest a large part of your time as a member of the state senate of South Carolina? Why do you do that? He said, pastor always answered the same way. He would say, I do it because I know that decisions about better roads are not made in church. It's true, isn't it? Decisions about better education are not made here. Decisions about legal policy are not made here. Decisions about building regulations are not made here. Decisions about medicine and healthcare are not made here. Decisions about more ethical uses of technology are not made here. And yet these decisions and the people who make them affect us all every day. In some cases, if you're a Christian, they make it easier or harder for you to share your faith. Jesus Christ, as we said this morning, is the head of all things. But the decisions that will honour Jesus in those spheres are not made on Sunday. They're made by you and by people you mix with and people you know in the marketplace. I will never understand why so many Christians, I'm sure there are none here tonight because you're thinking people, but as I travel the world, I meet so many Christians who just want to be a preacher. And I feel like saying, do you know what's involved in that? Because the Bible says that the teacher has twice the responsibility of the hearer to live what he or she says. That's a big thing when you take it seriously. I know so many people want to be a pastor. And I told some people the other day, I was a pastor for nine years and God delivered me. And I'm so grateful. <laughs> it's hard work being a pastor. Yeah. It's not what you think it is. It's not just standing up here like Mark does and going ooh la la. <laughs> There's a lot more to it than ooh la la. It's hard work. It's a dangerous way to live. But why would you want to be something you're not called to be? I believe God has a favour for every Christian. And that favour sets you apart for a certain type of influence. It's a visible favour. It's like a spotlight that comes on you tonight. If you're sitting in this room and it's dark, suddenly there's a spotlight comes on you. And that's me. 
And that spotlight is there to equip you for a certain type of influence. It's God saying, look at this person. They carry this gift. They carry this influence. You want this? Go to them. Divine favour doesn't make you better than anybody else and it doesn't make you any more loved by God than anyone else. It just sets you apart for a particular kind of influence. And favour does look different on different people. I was in speaking in the north of Scotland recently. We were there to do a civic event for the heads of oil companies in what is one of the major capitals for oil mining in Europe. But the church that was hosting this event, I had spoken there a few weeks before and after the sermon, the pastor came to me and he said, I just want you to know, we've been working with a woman in our church who is one of the leading executives of one of the biggest oil companies in the world. She's only fairly recently come to Christ just a few months ago and it's been a tough journey for her. Her life was tough before and she's had to make some changes, but she loves the Lord. And it's been a tough journey. She came to me this morning, he said, Mel, and she was beaming from ear to ear and with tears coming down her face. She said, today was the first time I really understood God called me to lead an oil company. What's your oil company? Maybe you haven't worked it out. That's okay. Maybe you're 20 years old. Listen, I did six years of architecture in university. After the second year, I knew I wouldn't be an architect. I didn't know what I was going to do. They didn't have the cool ministry options we have today. Ministers were people who wore three-piece suits and fat ties and spoke a language none of my friends could understand, and I didn't want to know about that. And even if I had a cool option, I might not have taken it. I didn't know what I was called to do, but I knew I was called to do something. And as long as you know that, you'll keep looking until you find it. And it won't look the same for you as it does on Mark or Joyce or any of the leaders here or even the person next to you tonight. And by the way, that means favour will cost you. The favour itself is a gift of grace. You didn't earn it. You don't pay for it. But actually expressing that favour will cost you. It'll cost you some friends. Anybody here have any friends? 17 people. <laughs> Ooh la la. If you don't have any friends, just go buy some. Hey, man, I'll give you 10 euros if you be my friend for a day. Sure. Favour is a gift, but expressing it will cost you friends because it marks you out as different. Somewhere along the line, you might have to say, these were my friendships before, but now God has to give me new friendships because he's called me in a new direction. And I'll, I'll do all I can to keep my friends, but if I have to start emphasising new things, well, maybe I have to go in this direction. It will cost you some enemies because as soon as you decide to live in God's favour, you give up the right to hold a grudge. If you're not careful, bitterness will take the place of vision. Bitterness will occupy the space that was meant for vision in your life. Favour will cost you some comfort. Jesus did not say, take, I drive a BMW. It's not the top of the range. It's sort of medium range. And I love German cars and always have and always will. But Jesus didn't say, take up your BMW and follow me or take up your cross and follow, take up your Mercedes and follow me or take up your, your Ford bedroom home. He said, 
take your cross. Now, I don't have to carry Jesus' cross. I will never have to carry the cross he carried, the shame, the ignominy, the pain, the agony he went through. I will never be separated from God now because I've accepted Jesus and what he did for me. He took that cross. I don't have to carry that. Some Christians carry on like they're supposed to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus didn't die for you, so you'd have to die the same way, go through the same pain and agony. He took it for you. But you have to take up your cross. That means there are ways in which your favour will cost you. But favour will take you far further than you can ever imagine. You'll look back in years to come and think, how did I get here? When I was 19, I can just remember it. I gave my first sermon in church. Now, in those days, you were allowed to speak to the youth group, but you didn't have any young and brave thing on a Sunday night where you could get up and ooh la la and just... For me to actually preach on a Sunday night was really something. And I, I remember working hard on that message. When I finished the message, I don't even remember what I said. But people came up to me, old people, who in those days didn't compliment anybody. I'm not being facetious. That's just the way it was. And they were coming up to me and saying, Mel, that was, that was something. number of them. One person thought it was too good that I couldn't be possibly speaking this. It had to have come from a book. But even that was a compliment. And I remember walking away from that night feeling humbled but also wondering maybe there's something in this. And everything I've done since and I can only speak from my life. That's why I'm doing it. It's the only life I know. This is my 42nd year as a speaker now, my 36th as a minister, my 50th as a Christian, and I'm so glad the Lord's been so faithful to me, so much more than I've been to him at times. But I want to tell you something. Everything I've ever done has been because, as Luke said, the word of the Lord came to John in the desert. I came from a town no one even knew in the city it was a suburb of. That's true. My father didn't drive a car for health reasons. There were seven children in my family and we would walk, I was the eldest, we would walk every Sunday two miles to church and two miles back and then at night the boys who were older than the girls had to walk another two miles and another two miles back while the girls got to stay home and watch Disneyland (laughs) on television. We didn't travel anywhere when I was a kid, and yet I've been to more than 40 countries, some of them 20 times, to speak, not to have holidays, to work. Sometimes when I'm having a really bad day on British Airways, which is quite often, I have to pinch myself and say, remember your father and what he sacrificed so that you could be here. The favour of God will take you much further than you thought it could. Don't envy my favour when I may be envying yours. I used to wonder, why did God give Brian? I've known Brian Houston since he was before he was Brian Houston. (laughs) 
When I came to live in Europe, there was a Brian Houston. The only Brian Houston anybody knew was an Irish folk singer called Brian Houston. That's true. And I used to say, Lord, why did you give Brian this really big church? I mean, he's gifted. He's a great leader. But come on, Lord, there's got to be more to it than that. Why did you give him this great church and not me? And one day, I, I'm a bit slow, but one day I had a small revelation. It felt like the Lord was saying, but he doesn't get phone calls from the BBC. All right, all right, you got that one, God. I'll give you, I'll give you that one. <laughs> your favour won't look the same as your friend's favour. But it'll take you further than you thought you could go. If we're going to bring faith to a pre-faith age, we need a different understanding of human rights. See, for a Christian, the talk in our society about human rights doesn't, it's not that it goes too far. It doesn't go far enough. If I go to my bank and I ask for a loan, and the bank says yes, I have certain rights. I have the right to use that money for personal purposes. I have the right to enjoy the fruit of that money. I have rights, but my rights are only in place because the bank had rights before me. The bank has the right to give me the loan. The bank has the right to expect that I'll use it for good purposes. The bank has a right at the end of the day to expect me to pay it back or account for it. I have rights as a human being only because God has rights. God has the right to give me life. God has the right to expect me to use my life for good and righteous purposes. God has a right to expect at the end of time an accounting for how I've lived. This is why Christians have so often been at the forefront of human rights movements. Because Micah 6 says, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord desire of you? That you do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. We all talk about the right to own things. That's mine. You can't have it. But in the Christian worldview, we don't own anything. We're just stewards of what belongs to God. You know, when you realize that, it liberates you from a materialistic way of living. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it and everything and everyone in it. My car isn't my car. I don't own a house, but if I did, it wouldn't be my house. It'd be the Lord's house. I don't own anything. The tithe is required, but the total is owed. I should thank God every Sunday he only asked for a tenth because he could ask for 100% every week. It's all his. 
We talk about the right of freedom of speech. And I believe in this. Because it's a key part of Christian teaching. And that's where it came from in Western history. Your conscience will never be bullied by the Holy Spirit. He will never invade your decision space and bully you into submission. Jesus entreated people. He tried to persuade people. He tried to move people, but he not once bullied or trolled anybody. Freedom of belief is entrenched in our culture because of Jesus. But today we have political correctness that says all lifestyles are equally valid, all ideas of truth are equally true, which is if you're a logical thinker, a false equivalence. You can't have something that is both a truth and an error at the same time. Some things are right just because they're right. Some things are wrong just because they're wrong. Truth and error are mutually exclusive events. They can't be the same thing at any one time. And this political correctness has hollowed out our cultures, making them a shadow of their former selves. And we have students today in the country I come from who don't get to hear certain speakers. I'm among them. (laughs) I'm proud of that. Because you say certain things about certain issues, you're not allowed to speak to students because they're apparently too fragile. They're not. Too fragile, too intellectually lightweight to think through something for themselves. University ought to be the one place where you can dissent and debate ideas. We will never really get human rights right. Until we acknowledge that God 